Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. I'm so excited about today's show because we're beginning a brand new podcast series that I'm calling Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Late Talkers. Now, today we're going to be doing part one and talking about why imitation matters. And so before we go any further, I want to tell you why imitation matters. It's the number one difference that really separates a talker from a non-talker. So when we can get a child imitating, he is well on his way to talking. And I'm going to teach you how to do this again, not in just 10 minutes, because it's not quite that easy with kids who aren't imitating on their own, but over this nine-part podcast series. So I'm so excited that you've joined me for this. Now, we are launching this series with the launch of our $10 CEU program. Now, how is that different from our other CEU programs? It's because now we're going to take therapy clips and really dive deep and analyze and dissect those clips and talk about what works and what doesn't work with particular children. And I'm doing this so that I can help you be just the most effective therapist or effective parent of a late talker as you can be. So for you to fully participate in this, you need to get the handouts. And you can do that by purchasing CE credit for each of our shows. The link is going to be right there below in YouTube. And so if you're listening to this podcast on your podcast app, this is going to be one of the shows that you're going to want to watch on YouTube because uh, you'll be able to see the therapy clips. And again, I think it'll make a little bit more sense to you watching it versus just listening. And let me give you one more bonus for getting uh, the CE credit for these shows. You'll get this nice handout. Now in this first show the handout is one page. In the subsequent shows most of the other ones in this series are two because it's just packed with information and if you are a therapist you can certainly use these handouts as one component of your family training and family coaching program so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. All right so let me also say that this information is updated from my steps to building verbal imitation skills in toddlers that I taught live for years and years and that uh, I've had on DVD that you can get at my website at Teach Me to Talk. It is based on material that you'll find in my therapy manual called Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. And so again, if you're interested in that, those links are below as well. And this is a new course offering. So if you've taken this course again live or if you've done it on DVD, this is a new offering with ASHA. So you can certainly continue to get more CE credit for this information. Uh, by just participating in this process. All right, so let's start out by talking about what we're going to do at the beginning of every show in this series. And I want to give you three or four things that you need to know about imitation at that level. So today we're going to just start with this three big overall bullet points that I want to teach you about imitation. And why is this important? Well, if you're a therapist, this is important because this is the information that you need to be sharing with parents. So these are your sound bites. And if you are a parent, this information is really going to help you conceptualize and really understand why your child isn't talking and really link that with how important imitating is. So let's start out with this first big bullet point about imitation. Imitation is how children learn 
everything. And actually, it's how most of us adults learn things, too. Now, we can certainly read and we can certainly uh, listen. And if you're listening on the podcast, that's a good example of that. But watching, the ability to see and do are basically how we learn everything from tying our shoes to swimming to driving when we're older. And certainly for our little little friends who are still babies and toddlers, that's how they learn how to talk, too. And so imitation is, is just so important for learning because that's how we learn everything. Point number two, and again, you can follow along on the handout if you've uh, gotten that. When a child is not talking yet, there's a very high probability that he's also not imitating. And so again, we can link this back. No matter what a child's diagnosis is or turns out to be, we are always on the right track when we are thinking about how well does he imitate? How well can he copy what I say and repeat what I say? And again, that's how all kids learn how to talk. So when we don't see imitating, we're not going to see talking and we're certainly not going to see communicating because that's how uh, that whole process evolves. First, kids have to connect with us and then they have to have enough attention to have joint attention with us and pay attention to what we're paying attention to. Then they have to understand what we're talking about and link meaning with that. And then the fourth piece in that is imitating. So when we get a kid who can't imitate, we get a kid who's not talking and communicating. So that's why that's so important. The third piece of information that I want you to know today about imitating is imitation is the most important skill that we can teach every child with a language delay. Now, if you are an SLP, you might be thinking, well, what about vocalizing? Or what about, you know, whatever you might, you know, semantics, what words mean, all those things. Yes, those things are important. But honestly, guys, until a child knows how to imitate or copy, that learning channel, that continuum is just not going to be open like it is when we have a kid who's watching someone else, who's listening to someone else, and then who's doing what they do. So imitation, again, is the most important thing that we're going to teach every late talker on our caseload. All right, so let's move on now and talk about some differences and some similarities in kids who are late talkers. And if you've heard me teach this course live, I always start this course with a question. What is up with all these late talkers? Our caseloads look dramatically different. If you have worked for, say, 20 years, 15 years, even 10 years, your caseload looks a lot different today than it did when you first began. It certainly is much different for me, when I went to grad school in the 90s and got my undergrad in the 80s, much, much different than it did when I first started seeing infants and toddlers. And actually, I think we're in for another big change. I think the consequences of COVID are going to really, really, really be felt on early intervention caseloads for a long time. The research is starting to come out about that and the effects and the best study that I've seen about that is still not peer reviewed yet. So it's not officially published, but it's you know in, in white papers as they call it, but it was done by Rhode Island Hospital and Brown University. And this is part of a longitudinal language study that they do in their area with children and they have the identification process already in place. And so they were already testing children. And so they were able to compare babies at one year in August of 2021 versus the previous years in the study, 2020, uh, you know, 2019, 2018, 2017, for several years back. And here's the very scary thing they discovered when they analyzed their data. 
And let me just kind of do some background for this for parents. If you're not uh, uh, just really familiar with analyzing the results of standardized assessments. And so let me give you some background with that. When a kid is average, just right in the middle at the 50th percentile, you know, as average as you can be, uh, you know, right jab in the middle of, we, if we took 100 kids, the most average kid would be at the 50th percentile. And his score would be 100 on a standardized assessment. Now, it's not 100, meaning he got everything right, like we think about 100 when we think about a test score. But this is, this is how we do standardized tests. So that 100 number is right there in the middle and that's where we want quote unquote typical average just to be right there when they scored the results of the test that they used the standardized assessment and it was the mullen scales of early learning so a really reputable developmental test that looks at kids in all five areas when they they looked at the cognitive score for the mullen the score dropped from a standard score of 100 for average to 78. Now, I've paused there on purpose <laughs> to let you SLPs kind of wrap your head around that. So what does that mean? That means our average has lowered. It's down on that left side of the bell curve there, and it's actually even below the uh, one standard deviation, which we think about typical development could be, you know, right there at average at 100 and then 15 points less, so at 85, and then 15 points more at 115. And so we have kids that average has moved even well below that first standard deviation below the mean and so what is what what is that what implication is that well that means that a child's the average cognitive score is down there again at 78 versus 100 so what is cognition cognition is how kids learn it's how we measure how we test how they learn so how they what what does that mean that means how they remember things you teach them something one day or you address it you show it to them you work with them on it and then what do we want the next day we want them to have retained that information so remembered it or learned it we want them to be able to take things and plan what they want to do so that if they see a toy and they realize that a toy's missing that they say ah i need something else how can they plan we want them to organize their activities even at this young developmental age 12 months to 24 months when we're going to see all these things that we're going to talk about with imitation have you know come in during that first two years we want to see a child who knows oh my goodness if I want to pretend to give my teddy bear a drink here and you know I'm going to need something else I'm going to need a cup I've got to go get that I've got a plan I've got to organize my space here where's I'm going to give my teddy bear a bite where's my spoon you know those kinds of things are examples of a child's cognitive skills and so again if a child doesn't isn't developing that as we would expect his language is naturally going to be more delayed because he hasn't met all the prerequisite milestones that lead up to that so this is a really scary implication for us as SLPs and so we need to really think about that and really connect it and help parents connect it with this very important piece of information that I'm about to give you cognition drives language and so when we have have a child again whose cognitive skills aren't what we know them that that they should be based on comparing them to uh, points of data after points of data after points of data meaning years and years and years of developmental milestones that research has tracked when we know that that cognitive score is lower again we expect that language to be delayed so that's something that we have to think about with parents and talk about with parents and, and certainly talk about uh, when cognition is delayed it's not just the talking piece that's delayed what else is delayed
It's the receptive language. And really, cognition and receptive language are so closely tied before age three that we really shouldn't even separate them. And that's not just my opinion. That's Dr. Uh, Rossetti's opinion, who's just a big name in infant-toddler services and in research. And so that's such, again, a big implication for late talking. Lots and lots of more kids to see. So let's kind of look at some basic statistics right now so that I can share with you where we are right now and kind of let you see not only how common late talking is, but also even though it's common, it's not typical or not what we would expect. But I do think this data is worth sharing with you. So late talking is the number one reason that children receive early intervention and pediatric services throughout the United States. And that certainly has held true with the state program and state programs that I was involved in when I did that with early intervention. And I bet it's the same way in your state too. Speech language delay is the most common developmental disability when we look at children not only in that uh, birth to three period, but also from three years to 16 years, with approximately three to 10% of children affected. ASHA, the American Speech uh, Language and Hearing Association, which is the professional association that credentials speech language pathologists, says that 15% of all preschool age children and 10% of school age children do exhibit some kind of communication delay or disorder. And again, just because that many kids are affected, you know, one in 10 or one and a half per 10 kids, it doesn't mean that it's quote unquote normal. And so sometimes parents think that late talking is just something different like green eyes or blue eyes or brown hair or blonde hair and really that's not the case and the, and the reason that it's so important is because language really is your jump start for all academics so when we have a kid who's talking late we also know that he's at risk to read late he's at risk to have difficulty with all kinds of academic kind of learning because even if a teacher is teaching math she's still what she's still talking she's still using language to teach and language to communicate that message and so we have to really be careful with that so that we understand and prioritize language development because again, it's that jumping point, that launching pad for all of a child's school age at success. Let's talk about something else that's really, really common when we, you know, uh, I just talked about sometimes parents kind of normalize late talking. What else do they tend to normalize with talking or late talking? It would be gender differences. And what do they normally say? They'll say boys talk later than girls. That that's not necessarily true. And why can I say that? Because we standardize assessments or all the developmental folks, all the language people that do those tests and make sure those tests are current, they standardize them using boys and girls. So boy scores are already built in. So when we have a boy that's not meeting those developmental milestones, we don't need to take it back and say, well, he's a boy. He's going to talk later because he's a boy. We don't need to do that. And certainly we don't need to do that as professionals. Now, does that negate the truth that boys are three to four times more likely to have any kind of language delay or disorder than girls? No. Little boys are more likely to be affected by any kind of developmental issue more than little girls were per se. However, it doesn't mean that we don't that we need to pull back on those developmental milestones. It also means that as a, the parent of a late talker, you don't need to let your doctor do that either. So if you've been speaking to your physician and saying, 
12 months, 18 months, and now you're at that two-year checkup, that three-year checkup, and your child is still not talking as well as other children his age, don't let your doctor get away with saying, well, boys talk later than girls. Because again, when we look at the milestones, that's not really, that's not really how we measure that. Also, boys are more likely to have autism than girls. So we used to think the ratio was four to one, four little boys for every one little girl that had autism. Now those numbers are more like seven and one. So it's certainly much more likely that a little boy will have some developmental issues with language or even disordered language like we would see in autism than little girls. So I wanted to uh, talk with you about that. All right, uh, let's move on now and talk about some profiles of late talkers. And here we're really going to compare late talkers. They are not, you know, a homogeneous group. Now, usually when I'm talking about this word, I say, what does that mean when I'm teaching this live? They're not the same. They can come to us with all different kinds of profiles or backgrounds. So let's run through just a few of those things. First of all, late talkers can have a medical diagnosis associated with the communication delay, and that would be something like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or hearing loss or any other kind of neurological brain difference that um, is usually again determined pre or just immediately post birth. And so certainly we could have a group of kids like that. We know that they are at risk for communication delay. Their parents have a good idea of what the challenges might be for that particular children. And then there's a whole nother group, <laughs> whole nother, whole, uh, and, and another group. <laughs> And another group, there we go, another group of late talkers who come to us without a medical diagnosis. And as far as we know, there's no known cause for uh, speech-language delay. And so certainly that's a big difference that we might see. Uh, let's talk about sensory processing and sensory uh, integration profile, sensory regulation profile. So what do I mean by that? By that, I mean how well a child filters incoming information, so things he can see, things he can hear, things he can taste, things he can feel, how it feels to move his body through space, so the kinesthetics there. So what, what kind of differences can we see there? And when I talk about this, if that's kind of a new term for you, it's going to make a lot of sense. First of all, we have late talkers who can who can be at either end of this wide, wide pendulum or continuum of what we see with kids. Over here, we're going to have our busy kids. <clears throat> now, what's a busy kid look like? He's busy. <laughs> He's all over the place. He's a sensory seeker. So a kid who is just constantly on the go, and we've all met late talkers like that. Sometimes we think if I could slow him down, he would learn how to talk, and that certainly could be the case with that. So we have some late talkers who are just off the charts with their activity levels, and again, our main job as SLPs and as parents would be don't think about it as slowing them down, although it kind of looks like that. It's really helping them regulate and find that just right place so they can learn. So we have our kids who are really, really busy. When we swing really wide with that pendulum, what else can we find on the, uh, on the opposite end of that continuum? We find kids who are avoiders. So instead of seeking things out, instead of jumping up on the table and jumping down and crashing into the couch and doing all the seeking, they're the opposite. They don't like how their clothes feel. They might not like bright lights or bright sun. Uh, they may have a hard time with how things smell when they, they just, uh, they don't like new experiences, maybe Play-Doh 
snow for them has been terrible or they can never have their shoes off outside in the grass. Just sensory experiences. They have a hard time filtering that incoming information so that they can keep their little bodies stable and keep things peaceful so that they, again, they get in that just right place to learn. And so that's kind of an opposite kind of profile and we have to figure out where kids are with that. We also can think about sensory issues in terms of hypersensitive kids. These would be kids that are overreactors so that if they're having some of those things that they want to avoid, not only do they avoid them, they freak out about them. So it might be a kid that touches Play-Doh and maybe gags because that sensation is just something that, again, icks him out. It might be a kid that you are trying to, you're trying to give them some movement to help them regulate, but you flip them upside down and that's too much movement for them. They become dizzy. They become completely dysregulated, completely off. Uh, usually we'll use a lot of swinging with kids, especially busy kids, to help them regulate. Sometimes you might try to do that with a hyper-sensitive uh, kid, with a kid who's an overreactor, and they completely forget about it because their little bodies haven't been prepared for that. So we have kids who are overreactors. They hear a fire alarm at preschool and they completely fall apart. And so uh, sometimes we'll see that as a sensory profile. We'll also see the opposite, the hypo-sensitive kids. And these are the kids that are usually the sensory seekers because they can't get enough. They're under reactors. They don't want to just jump off the little step, the first little step of your staircase and get that normal little aha that a typically developing two-year-old might get from that. They want to jump from the third step and the fourth step and make you completely lose your mind because you're afraid of what might happen. Or they jump off the couch and they've fallen and you've heard a little head uh, a bang on the floor or you think, oh, he fell right on his knees. He jumps up. He might even be bleeding. But guess what? He's not reacting. Our overreactors would fall apart, but our underreactors, oh, he's fine because he doesn't even really uh, feel pain. The sensations of pain aren't even the same to him as you would expect a typically developing toddler to be. And so here's the truth. Most of us, adults and children, are in between those two extremes. And so we really have to consider where our child is and how that factors in to uh, their ability to learn language. So can they sit still with you for 20 minutes with one activity? If they're a sensory seeker, busy kid, no, they can't. And so you've got to know that so that you can plan your treatment strategies around that. We're going to talk about that as we go. All right, late talkers can also vary in how noisy they are. And so sometimes we'll get a late talker who comes in and he's just jabber, 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 jabber. Can't understand anything that he's saying. We can't really link anything. He may not even be using any joint attention, meaning that, that all that vocalization is not even really directed toward us. All of the, the things he's saying might be self-stimulatory. However, he's noisy. Let's contrast that with a kid who's eerily quiet. Have you had kids in your sessions that you can hear your heartbeat? <laughs> because they are so quiet. And it, it might really unnerve you because that child is making no attempts at vocalizing or verbalizing. So we have to think about those differences with our kids too and kind of equate where they are. Now we start to sort of then tease out from all these things that we've already said that there's a wide range of normal 
with our kids on either end of those continuums being the kids that we worry about because we, again, average typical is kind of more in the middle. Let's talk about some things that fall more on those extremes. We might see a late talker who also exhibits differences in pragmatic and social skill interactions. And so those would be the kids that no matter how many times you call them or how what you do to try to engage them, it is really, really hard. You might, uh, this might be the kind of kid who comes into your evaluation and uh, he's doing something and again you just cannot get his attention even when you have something that that you think that he that most children respond to even children with language delays and so you think oh I can't believe I can't really hook this kid's attention that kid's not really just a late talker and we're going to be start to now kind of divvy out the kids or divide them up into things that again fall within the normal range and not because so many times parents think what Every kid is different. It doesn't matter when he starts to talk on time, talk as long as he talks on time, and that is true. However, we can't always allow this this uh, rush for individual differences to account for even developmental delays. And a lot of times, parents will have that, and so we have to really talk about that. Now, we as SLPs have to still recognize individuality and meeting children where they are and letting working with a child within his realm of preferences. We certainly have to do that, but but <laughs> when a child isn't meeting those milestones, that's a difference that's really outside the realm of normal or typical development. And the reason that's so important is the longer a child stays off track and the further he is from that wide range of normal, the harder it's going to be for him to catch up. And so that's how we talk to parents about it. And we want everybody as caught up as they can be and ready to learn when their little feet hit the threshold of their kindergarten classroom. And so that's when, when they're really developmentally ready to learn how to read and learn how to write and again that just really sets the stage or you know it sets the stage for failure or success and so we have to help parents really see that and really understand and when we have a kid who doesn't have the social interaction piece or the pragmatic piece and that's the first piece of communicating and so we can teach a kid to talk all day long but if he doesn't have that reciprocity or that nice back and forth or that beautiful joint attention where you are showing him something and he is looking at it and he's looking back at you and then looking back at that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you just a darling therapy clip of that when we get to part one of this course. And so uh, this is certainly, certainly something that would fall outside the realm of, of really kind of just a late talker. There are other developmental differences going on. There could be kids that are late talkers that function uh, within, it, it's not just a language delay in that it's how they talk, it's an overall language delay. Words don't make sense to them yet. That may be why they're not, well, that would be why they're not following directions yet or why parents just say oh gosh he just kind of does his own thing you can ask him to do something over and over and over but you know he kind of ignores me and a lot of times again it could be that social problem that we just talked about you don't get that great eye contact that great joint attention that great turn taking but it could also be a receptive language problem the words just don't make sense to him yet and so that's certainly a difference that we can see with like talkers you know there's some uh, newer diagnostic terminology that's showing up in the literature now that really compares late bloomers to late talkers 
Now, what's the difference? And I've written uh, a lot about this at my website. I did a whole show, a whole podcast about Lake Talking. It's uh, podcast number 421. So if you want to check that out, it has a lot more data, a little bit of the stuff that we've already covered, but, you know, in great detail. So check that out if you want to. But it talks about late bloomers versus late talkers. And late bloomers are kids who catch up completely by the time they're three. So they may have been a little later to talk, but by the time they're three, you cannot differentiate their language language compared to typically developing toddlers or toddlers who had not had that language delay. So that's a late bloomer. A late talker is different in that he or she will continue to struggle with language even after that third birthday. So if you are an early interventionist, that's certainly something that you need to be thinking about and talking with parents about and even knowing in your own mind. And we love late bloomers because they're the stars on our caseload, right? They're the kids who make us look wonderful because they are meeting those language milestones. Now, am I say by the time they turn three, am I saying that they did not need therapy, they would have caught up anyway? No, I'm not saying that. I think any child, even especially, especially sometimes our kids with the mildest speech language delays, we need to offer them the services so we can bump them up into that that normal range so that they don't need services anymore. And more importantly from that, so that they are developmentally ready to learn. Like I said, when their feet cross that threshold in their kindergarten classroom, they are there, they are ready, they are listening. They under, they have all the pre-linguistic skills, all the, all the preschool language, all that is ready to go. They are just their best little selves. And so that's what we want to get there. And so many, many, many times though, even comparing the kids who, again, for whom that is going to be unrealistic, the kids who still are struggling after they're three and after they're four and after they're five, many times the first concern, even, you know, if when we look at all the kinds of kids that we've talked about, the different sensory profiles, uh, the different medical profiles, all those things, the very first thing that a parent might notice with those kids would be late talking. So as a professional, it's really up to us to decide, is late talking this child's only issue or is late talking just a part of a much bigger developmental problem? Now, why do we have to do that? Because when we just focus on the, the expressive language piece or the talking piece, we may spin our wheels and just be stuck for months and months if all we're focusing on is what that child says. And as we talked about before, there are so many prelinguistic and prerequisite skills that a kid has to get there uh, before he's really developmentally ready to talk. And so for us as a professional, we have to have some guidelines so that we can know right away, even from that first assessment, and again, even beyond those uh, the assessment information that we might get from a big uh five area developmental test or even the assessments that we might give even if it's a criterion reference test you know say the Rosetti which is a wonderful instrument however sometimes we need these little checklists that help us really kind of steer our clinical impressions from the very beginning so that we are doing everything we can to make sure that we're getting that late talker on track. So I have two different studies that I want to talk to you about and they're both listed on your handout. The first one is from Dr. Weatherby and it's a 2004 study. It identified behaviors that really separated or differentiated two-year-olds with autism from two-year-olds who were typically developing or had kind of a non-specific developmental delay. And so again kind of a global delay. So these are 
the, would be the kids who were just later on everything. So these were the factors that really, again, separated likelihood of getting an autism diagnosis versus a speech or language delay. So here, you can run through the list there, lack of appropriate gaze, lack of showing enjoyment or emotion with gaze, so how did they use their eyes, failure to respond to their name, failure to coordinate their gaze, their gesture, their facial expression and vocalization. So that would be a kid who, if you're giving him a cookie or if he wants a cookie, he doesn't know that he can hold his hand out. He might try to grab it from you. He's not looking at you. He's not looking at the cookie and back at you and the back of the cookie again. You don't see any of that nice joint attention. And again, we talked about how important joint attention is for learning. Kids have to have that so that they know that the words that they're hearing you say match what they're talking about and it's when they really link that meaning that's what receptive language and cognitive development is when we're looking at a kid under three and so kids who can't do that have a really harder time learning language kids who, and, and again they're more at risk for autism that that uh, discoordination of their visual system and their language system and then even their gesture so even though it's an expressive language action that they're doing there, uh, responding or even initiating that. And so kids with autism have a hard time with that. Lack of expression of joint attention, we've talked about that a lot, and lack of joint attention is a big marker for autism. Unusual vocalizations, these usually uh, have to deal with self-stimulatory things that a child might do. He might hum excessively. He or she might quote lines from a movie or a show or an entire book or a little girl I worked with a long, long time ago saying happy birthday in three different languages. That's an unusual vocalization for a two-year-old. And so those are the things that might separate autism or that do separate autism from speech uh, language delay and even typical development. And certainly repetitive movements with the body or objects. Now, if you've heard this list and you recognize this in a child that you care about or your own child, let me refer you to show number 430, where I really... Uh, review the the nine signs of autism early signs of autism and give you some more information about that so you can really uh, get confirmation that you need to move forward with some uh, additional professional assessments with the child or just just to really come to acceptance with that with this is certainly something I need to think about this is this is probably the reason my child isn't talking and isn't communicating so I wanted to refer you to that the second study that's on this uh, th that we're going to talk about today was a 2008 study so a little more uh, a little newer but with Dr. Paul and she lists a lot of these same things and again these are the things that tell us that it's more than late talking so let's run through this list so this list also accounts for kids that it's not just language delay again this would be language disorder now what are the differences language delay just has to do with time so everything is coming in as expected it's just slow so instead of a child saying his first words at 12 months or 15 months he may not get a first word until 18 months 21 months so he's got that delay in there but everything is coming in again there's just a difference in time when there's a language disorder we start to see atypical characteristics that are present this would mean that we see things that we don't expect to see like some self stems like flapping your hands or maybe like things in play lining up toys in play those are th rather than playing those are things that we would not expect to see so when we see disorders we see things that are there that aren't typically there and there's the delay component. There are things that are supposed to be there that are absent. And so that's certainly another, um, another way that we can separate that. If you want more information about those kinds of things, please watch uh, show number 1000 where we really 
tease out the characteristics of autism versus speech delay. Let's keep running through this list because there are a lot of these are similar to what we've talked about with the Weatherby study. The second one here would be joint attention and we talked about that that's how kids learn language. They link meaning with what you're saying and what they're seeing and that's how they start to know that a ball is called a ball because they hear you say ball <laughs> every time you play with his round shaped bouncy object and he starts to associate that word hearing that word and assign meaning to that so that he understands what that word means and he can't do that he can't say ball he can't imitate the word ball as easily and then use that word until he knows what that word means and so he's got to hear that there so joint attention is how that starts with him paying attention to when you say look he averts his gaze he turns his little head and he makes his eyes find what you are asking him to look at and joint attention again a lack of that is a big big marker for autism. So many kids with autism really struggle with that and we have to teach them how to do it. Otherwise, they look pretty self-absorbed, meaning that when they're with you at home or they're with you even in a therapy session, they are more likely to want to do their own thing and it takes a Herculean effort on your part or at least some effort to get them involved with what you want them to do. So joint attention and that's not just late talking. Kids with just a straight speech or language delay, speech meaning the sound part, language meaning the word or the meaning part or the, the language use part, they don't, they don't struggle with that. And so that certainly is a big marker there. We, uh, the next one, I've already talked about receptive language deficit. So when a child doesn't understand language it's not just late talking and so how do we measure that because sometimes parents even of a kid who's got some pretty significant uh, say physical challenges I've worked with lots of families whose children aren't walking at three but somehow people some professional uh, their team or maybe they heard it but they just weren't ready to connect it yet they've got kids again who aren't talking it or aren't walking at three and they really don't understand why they're not talking and how development again really is a continuum and and they have brain differences enough to disrupt their gross motor development but again parents haven't made that connection oh this will affect communicating and learning as well and so we have to help parents make that connection and get that and that's a that's tough that's tough as a therapist it's tough as a parent it really is and so we have to be compassionate with that and really again move parents there so that they understand the reality of what's going on with their child even though we're the people bearing bad news, you know, we still don't want to break their hearts. And so that's, that's certainly something, uh, that's a difference there. When a kid is not understanding language or following simple directions by 18 months. And so that's, that's a really, that's a big red flag. And that's really eye-opening for a lot of parents when they come in with a two-year-old that's not talking and they think it's just a talking piece and they really haven't considered that the child isn't understanding. So that's certainly something we have to have to talk through too. Gestures are a big marker when we don't see gestures like pointing, waving, bye-bye, clapping for excitement with you when we don't see those gestures emerging that a child would use communicatively by 12 months. We know that that child isn't just a late talker. Now we're going to talk a lot about gestures and how important they are for language development, especially in the third uh, show in this series. So we'll hang on to a lot of that information about gestures 
gestures until then. But just know that a child who's not using gestures by 12 months is really at risk for a language delay. And so that should certainly be something that you as SLPs are asking when someone comes and stops you in the grocery store or at church or at your older child's soccer game or whatever and says, hey, I know you're that speech lady. I'm concerned about my child. I'm concerned about my baby. Usually we say, well, how many words is he saying? I've sort of stopped doing that. I've pulled it back to these earlier things, the markers for autism, how how well does he respond to his name? I'll always ask about gestures. You know, is he waving bye-bye? Is he pointing to get you to look at something or to show you that he wants something? And so those are really, really important markers as well. When we don't see that emerging about 12 months, we know that kids can be a late talker. All right, uh, or, or that there's another developmental issue going on. The fifth sign that we're looking at here that it's more than late talking is that a child is not using pretend play by 24 months. And so many times parents will mistake pretend play, uh, well, just regular constructive play or exploratory play. Parents will assign meaning to that and think that a child is using pretend play. And so what I like to think about with this is there's usually more than one object going on and you, or you, a child is using more than one object. There's more than one object involved in this this scheme when there's pretend play and and if a child is verbal we're going to want to hear some vocalizations and things that go with it those let us really really know that a child is pretending pretending is not repetitive movement with toys and i told a story back in show 430 where with the early signs of autism i'm not going to repeat it here again but a lot of times parents will really you know just take one little thing that a child does and assume that it's pretend play and if we really start to analyze it and look at it we'll think no, that's more self-stimulatory behavior or that's more constructive play. And so we have to walk through that with parents and really help them understand what pretend play is. And I've done a lot of shows about pretend play, uh, particularly in my uh, autism series. Uh, the Autism Workbook series that I have here on YouTube. You can take a look at that. And then back in the uh, 11 Pre-Linguistic Skills series, there's a show on teaching kids how to play and how we move kids toward pretend play. But the real reason, that how does it connect with language? A child's language is never true language, not echolalia, what he just repeats, but his true language, what he's really, really using, is never going to be above his play skill development level. And so think about this. If a kid can't combine ideas and play, he's not going to be conversational or at least speak at the phrase level because he can't combine words with language. And so it's all tied together. Play is the very best way for us to measure a child's cognitive development. And pretend play lets us know that a child is becoming symbolic. Now, why is that important? Symbolism is important because words are symbols. Language What's language? It consists of words, all these words that we use. Really, they're just symbols. You know, Yeti is just the name for my cup here. It's just an an arbitrary label that we all decided this would be called, well, the makers of Yeti decided that this would be called a Yeti. And so that's the symbol. And so when we get a kid who isn't really understanding symbols, we know that he can't understand words. Now, how do we know that a nonverbal child doesn't understand symbols? He never uses an object in play to represent something else. So he doesn't pick up a stick and pretend that it's a spoon. To him, it just kind of stays a stick. He doesn't stir with it. He doesn't pretend to eat with it. He doesn't use it like it's a weapon. Those kinds of things are really evidence that a child is using symbols, and that's why that's important. We have to always see things non-verbally before we see them verbally. So that's another indicator I want you to uh, 
pay attention to too as a therapist or as a parent of a late talker when you're really trying to tease out is this late talking or is this something else is this more and uh, pretend play again a lack of pretend play is a big marker for autism another marker that we see here would be repetitive movement so these are the kids that use stereotypic movements or just anything repetitive use of their little bodies repetitive use of an object so instead of uh, playing with something let's let's say that you're playing with a little girl with who uh, you want her to play with a dish set you're going to have a tea party or let's just say wash pretend dishes in the kitchen instead of knowing that we're going to put the dishes in the sink and pretend to wash them she spins the plate or she spins the fork and that would be a repetitive self-stimulatory uh, action with that object it would also be a child who uses repetitive speech so this would be a kid who doesn't talk very much but he counts over and over and over all day long that would be an example of repetitive speech or a kid who again is echolalic who uh, quotes lines or, or paragraphs, scenes from his favorite movie. That would be a kid who's using uh, repetitive vocalizations. And that also would fall even under the next one, unusual vocalizations. So that would be atypical sound patterns. So think about those things. These are how we differentiate late talking from more significant um, developmental disorders and so when we're talking about imitating though imitating is the thing it's the commonality that ties all of those issues together and so uh, we have even though we're talking about well it could just be more than late talking it could be more 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 let's back up late talking in and of itself is a real developmental difference and again it's not that the child won't talk it's that he can't talk and I just do everything I can and teach me to talk my website to really spread that message that with can't versus won't it's not that late talkers won't talk and so many times we think about that or parents would think about it as a behavioral issue you think this kid's just holding out on me you know and you'll think as a speech pathologist you know it doesn't matter if I take candy it doesn't matter if I take bubbles it doesn't matter if I have Thomas the train this kid's not going to talk for me today and I hate it when we get into that and when we lapse into that because we think again that this kid can control it and most of the time most of the time is that the kid can't talk so when we get all of these developmental processes in place kids do talk changes happen and so that's why we have to make that shift and not think about it being about behavior because when we think it's about behavior what happens we get into a power struggle and then we think we're going to make him talk no matter what and nothing shuts down a late talking child more than that kind of just overt authoritarian pressure and so we don't want to do that we want to really really back off and think about again how can I make this fun how can I make this developmentally appropriate and how can I teach this kid to imitate because no matter what we've talked about so far in this course that's the commonality that's what's not happening with uh, the kids who aren't talking so imitation matters and we've already said the ability to see and do so to watch you and then to copy what what you do are huge indicators that a child's development is moving along and just from a therapeutic perspective from those of, for those of us who are early intervention professionals we can look at the five developmental domains and tell right away in every domain when a child is imitating that that's moving along fine when we have a kid that's imitating we know that he's socially connected and why can we say that because he's watching someone well enough to do what they do he's paying attention to them and so that would mean uh, that's a cognitive skill that attention piece so we know that that's developmentally appropriate he has focused his his 
gaze if you're looking at it from a purely physical perspective or his little brain all of his little brain power is right there focused on you and watching you and so that we know that he's cognitively moving along we know that his motor skills are coordinated enough to be able to make his body do what your body does and that doesn't matter if it's out here with an action or if it's a verbalization and so we know his motor skills are moving along and certainly when a child is verbal when he's using words that he generates on his own and again this would be the the point past imitating past saying it now he's using it he understands the meaning and he's saying that word to communicate with you for you to do something for him or to share an idea or whatever it is but we know then that his language is moving along so that's how important uh, imitation is it gives us just a window into how a child's development is moving along and not just verbally there's one more thing about imitation that I want to share in this show and we're going to talk about it in the next show and actually in the next show it's the whole crux of the show, but I'm going to share it with you now. A child's ability to imitate actions at 18 months, so not just words, but actions, what he sees somebody do, is a better indicator of his language skills at 36 months than even gestures. So we already talked about the importance of gestures. We see gestures emerge immediately before words in typical language development. We'll typically see a kid wave bye-bye and then he learns to say bye-bye. Or we'll see a kid start to point and then he learns how to label words to tell, to say to mom, first he pointed at the goldfish on the shelf and now he's saying fish or some version of that so his mom knows that he wants that so those gestures come first and that's so important we've got to see that but even more important than that would be his ability to copy actions so when he sees dad want to want to cut the grass if he loves sitting at the window we're standing on the couch looking out the window and seeing dad push the lawnmower and he tries to get one of his toys and you can tell oh my goodness he's trying he's pretending he's cutting the grass or a little video I'm going to show you later where there's a little girl who who takes her little Melissa and Doug picnic set and she takes the little red and white cloth from that and she's 17 months or so in this video and she starts to wash the table because she has seen her mom wash the table hundreds of times and so that kind of action is just the biggest predictor that a child's language skills from 18 months to 36 months that he's on track so that's more evidence that, that this imitation piece is a really critical piece that we as SLPs better be paying attention to. Now, imitation plays a critical role in typical development. We see newborns imitate facial expressions, social smiling, and even begin to vocalize in response to their parents in that first three months of life. And I'll just tell you, I've had confirmation of that. Uh, Johnny and I have a new grandbaby who's I spent the week with last week. He's uh, uh, 10 months, turned 11... Or, 10 weeks turned 11 weeks old when I was with him and he is oh my goodness he's doing a lot of this facial imitation and he's doing a lot of this ooing and cooing back and forth and it just reminds you of how imitation is just wired in and so when we don't see that happening very naturally and without a whole lot of effort on our part we know that there's a disconnect there and when we know that there's a disconnect we know that there will be developmental differences and so language is a big one when we don't see that imitation coming in we can 
expect there to be a language delay. In the second six months of life, so that's six to 12 months, kids really add a lot of that motoric stuff. They start to hold their own bottles or cups that they have watched you hold for them this whole uh, time that they've been drinking. They also learn how to start to uh, copy even body movements. So they start to do little games like patty cake and peekaboo. Back to the motor skills, they learn how to operate a busy box or they start to stack blocks or they learn how to, again, operate one of their push button toys. And so imitation is a major factor in development all across the board. Now, Brooke Ingersoll, who is a researcher uh, primarily with autism, has talked about the two roles of imitation that children have to acquire. There are two roles. First is learning. So this is how a child learns new skills. And we've talked a lot about that already today. Uh, and I even use some examples like learning to tie a shoe or learning how to ride a bike or even learning how to write. We copy. It's a learning. It's a learning. We're learning new information from when, when we're copying. There's all or imitating. There's also a social function. And this would be how a child learns how to relate to others and interact with others. So these would be the that we have to have kids, again, know how to do the niceties of our communication, know how to really form strong attachments, strong emotional connections with other people. And so we can have those roles of imitation disrupted. Let's think about Down syndrome and the strengths and weaknesses that a child with Down syndrome might have. We know that cognition is affected, so we know that that learning function of imitation may be disrupted. But guess what? Lots of kids with Down syndrome really rock that social function piece of imitation. They love it. They love their little games. They're so affectionate and so, you know, just want to reach out. They just, they just, shed love wherever they go because they're so emotionally attached so easily to other people. And so that certainly is another role with imitation. And so we have to kind of tease those things out and think which piece is missing here. Many, many times a child with autism and especially a child who is very verbal and very uh, maybe even still echolalic really just his strength is that learning role with imitation. But we have to make sure, again, that it's not just rote uh, verbalization there, that there's uh, he also understands that all that zany brainy information that he's spitting out of his little mouth. And so that that's a differentiation that we have to make. Imitation uh, is really disrupted in atypical development, as we've already talked about, and it really starts here at this neurological level. So there are brain differences. And if you will... Uh, watch or listen to my show number 430 where we talk about the early signs of autism. We talk about the brain differences that aren't there and we talk about mirror neurons or the brain differences that are there and the, the typical things that we want to see, the behaviors that we want to see in a child aren't there because he's wired differently. His little brain has some diff structural differences there. A child with autism, uh, it's the theory is the mirror neurons don't activate. So that natural imitation, like we just talked about with, with newborns, that's not, that's missing or that's disrupted or it's just so much weaker than we see in children who don't have autism. And so we can even see this way back at maybe a reflexive level. So let's talk about contagious yawning. Now, there was a study in child development in that journal in 2010 that talked about differences at this reflexive level with yawning with preschoolers who were in a library reading group and the kids with autism and the, the typically developing kids and the storyteller 
was to purposefully yawn several times and then the researchers looked at how the typically developing kids reacted versus the kids with autism reacted and guess what yawning is contagious even among reading uh, preschoolers at reading time at the library just like it would be uh, with a group of adults and when I taught this course live I would talk about that and I would yawn and invariably two or three people in a crowd of 50 or you know more even with a, a hundred people would begin to yawn and so that's how wired in imitation is we can't help but imitate when something like that uh, when, when something that reflexive like yawning happens when those mirror neurons kick in I yawn and then you yawn you yawn and then I yawn and we use this all the time with communication adults if I were with you right now you might start to wildly talk with your hands <laughs> because that's what I'm doing you may become really broad with your gestures because that's what I'm doing you may it may be more subtle you may cross your legs or you may moisten your lips like I've just done that kind of thing is again wired into us and so our little friends with autism don't have that imitation piece uh, really really it's not as easy for them it's going to be more of a challenge because their brains again are wired differently and so when we like we talked about a second ago when we said that imitation tells us that that development is moving along across the five developmental domains lack of imitation can also tell us where there are disruptions so when we don't see a child imitating us we have to think is this a social problem is this because he just won't watch me he won't stay with me he doesn't have that joint attention piece like he's not as connected to me so that social piece is that missing or is this a sensory processing thing is it that his little body cannot calm down enough to sit down with me to you know can he just not stay with me just from that in just that his little body just just kind of won't let him it's just preventing that is that the problem is that why he's not with me or maybe a kid on the other end of that that continuum a kid who just can't rev up enough to be able to pay attention a kid who's just again so so shut down because they're such an avoider so for those kids we have to pep them up enough to stay with us so is that the sensory processing difference is there a cognitive difference is he is he not able to really remember that that with this imitation piece is he not able to plan how to use this little body there does he not understand cognitively that waving like this and saying bye-bye means that one of us is about to go does he not get that yet so that would be a cognitive reason he's not imitating and that's not moving along it might be the motor piece that physically he can't close his fingers and isolate his index finger well enough to point to what he wants or he can't bring his hands to midline to clap or to sign more you know he can't uh, crawl over to get what he wants and so that cognitive piece is going to be delayed as well because we know motor skills drive cognition when I can move better I can explore better I can check more things out I can make more connections and so that might be a motor piece is affecting everything else and certainly when we don't hear kids talking we know that that verbal piece or that language piece is disrupted so again why have I taken all this time to talk with you about imitation what in the world does it have to do with talking and we've already said imitating is how kids learn everything remember that was one of our first three points but here's the other part about imitation kids are at different levels you're going to meet late talkers we've talked about all these different profiles you're also going to meet them where they are at different stages of imitation and there's a very uh, there's a very clear path a very clear hierarchy of how kids learn how to imitate where we break it down in these subsets and so when we don't work at the right place when we're not 
uh, determining the right goals for a child, we're working at a level that's usually too high. We're not going to see progress because the kid can't get to where we want him to be without filling in these other pieces of the chart, especially when there's some when there are multiple underlying reasons. So especially when we've talked about that a kid may go on to be diagnosed with autism or there may be some motor issues or it might just be, it may not be anything physically. It might just be that attention piece. We can't settle him down long enough for him to really start to be able to link meaning and then to do what we do. And so we've got to figure out where a kid is with that. When there's more, when it, and when it's more than just like talking, like I just talked about, if there's a motor piece or an attention piece or a cognitive piece or a social piece, again, just working on the talking piece alone is not going to make a significant difference for the child. So our therapy sessions and our therapy plans really need to be comprehensive in that we are working on the real reasons that a child isn't communicating yet, not just that end goal of talking. But that's not what what this conference is really about (laughs) or what this course series is really, really about here. It's uh, we're going to be working through imitation. And if you have kids who are really struggling with one of those pre-linguistic skills that I talked about, my uh, therapy manual, Let's Talk About Talking, is going to be better because you're going to address these prerequisites requisite skills first. Now, is that to say that you should turn this podcast off right now and stop listening? No, (laughs) because you are going to get a lot of good information to help you. There are just going to be some other things that you have to get in uh, into place first. So let's talk about what looking at a child's imitation skills alone will do for you. It is going to get you on the right track. So again, you can meet a child where they are and you can look at what's really going on. You can get right in there just at the skills that are just starting to emerge and you can strengthen those and you'll know how to do it. We've looked at the strategies in this course and when you really started to do those things and then you're going to start to see progress. The problem nearly always is with therapists and with parents when a child isn't making progress we're not working on the right stuff we're working on things that are just too hard that are beyond where a child should be and so when that happens we have to back up we've got to find that just right place and work with the child there and then, then and only then are we going to start to see progress. So your focus is going to be at just a really specific level, but I'm going to help you figure that out. Now, all the levels that we're going to talk about come from typical developmental sequences. And so all of these levels too, again, have some prerequisites, mostly that you need to be doing the things at the first level before you're going to move on. And these steps are broken down into easy pieces so that a child can, well, a parent can see where a child is functioning. Now, this is most clearly outlined in my uh, therapy manual, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. And we're going to talk about what all these levels are in just a minute. But I want you just to see that words, imitating words, are way up here at level seven. So look at all these six things, these six levels of imitation that have to come first. And so most of us, again, at speech therapy are way up here when we should be focused on these skills that are down here at those easy your earlier developmental levels. So I want to talk to you about uh, talk to you now about why this level works or why this method works. And I've already said it, but I want to be sure that you get it as a therapist or that you get it as a parent because I hate it when I learn something new and I think it's so important and I think it's so great, but then I don't know how to apply it. And the whole rest of this 
podcast series is going to be about application. We just did the background now in this one hour out of this eight or nine hour series to let you see kind of why imitation is important. But from here on out, we're talking about application, implementation. How do I do this? You know, where do I work? And the truth is most children or near, I would say all children who are late talkers are not developmentally ready to start way up here at working at words. And so we've got to figure out where they are so that we, again, can get into that just right place. And why is that important? Why do we want to get success as early as possible? It benefits all of us. It benefits the parent because you are seeing that you are not paying for something that's worthless and ineffective or you are not having your resources, whether it's your insurance coverage or even if you're getting the services for free, your time. Your time is not wasted. You want to see success and you want to get moving, but sometimes parents don't realize all the things that have to come in before words. That's our job as a therapist is to explain that to them and to talk about how we are setting success for imitating words when we are working on these lower, easier, earlier developmental vocalizations. The next little factor for success in this equation is always the child. Actually, he probably would come first, and we don't want to waste his time either. When we're working on the wrong things in therapy, he, you know, the tick tock, tick tock. We are wasting his developmental resources with his time with you, with making sure that what you were doing as a therapist is you were just the most effective you can be, and so and, and efficient as you can be. And so we don't want to waste time. We want to get him as successful as possible, because when he starts feeling success, when you and mom and dad are really happy and cheering him on, and he's getting what he wants and he's not as frustrated, life gets better for all of you. And so that certainly is a factor. And certainly as a therapist, setting the stage for early success is important. And that's why you want to meet a kid just where they are with imitation and start to get some just some evidences that that's moving along really quickly because that makes you feel better. You feel competent. You feel like you are doing what you're supposed to do. You feel you are confident that you, again, you, you know your stuff. And so that it's just so important for everybody. So that's why this method is so, so successful. And so I'm going to talk to you now about these levels of Im- imitation or these steps of imitation. And again, I just picked the word levels and, or steps here, whatever we want to use. But these are phases that kids go through. In typical development, these levels that we're looking at are not as clearly defined as we would have them here. They kind of all come in together and again we know that most children start to use words here functional words here at level seven by the time they're 12 months old so look and and then by the time they're 18 months old they start to do phrases even on their own so that would mean that they imitate them earlier so all of these things here happen in a baby's first 15 months or so 18 months certainly with typical development and so we have to really look at these phases and it's exciting with typical development because it's all happening sometimes seemingly as at once but this doesn't happen this way with late talkers they can get they can stay in a phase longer and they even might get sort of plateaued or stuck there and so that's what we have to do is is know this and know this continuum work this hierarchy so that we can move a child forward and this is just really a tool to give you an idea of some additional things that you could try and so I'm so excited about sharing that with you now so I'm Um, 
take a look at this graphic here. Let's just walk through uh, this hierarchy of imitation. And so we start out here and move up with level one. First, kids learn how to imitate actions with objects. Then they learn how to imitate body movements, and those turn into communicative gestures. The next level would be nonverbal actions with your face and your mouth. And so what we've done is we've taken imitation way out here with, in level one with our hands and our arms, and then we've, mo we've moved it with our whole bodies in level two. And then now we've moved it closer to talking because we've gotten to our face and our mouth. In level four, kids start to vocalize or say some things out loud, but we're not quite to words yet. So these are gonna be just our little play sounds. In level five, we have exclamatory words or words that we exclaim or, or shout with an exclamation point so words like wow and woohoo and yay those kinds of words level six we have automatic speech with verbal routines this would be where a kid is starting to use some words but it's just tied to really specific context so he can say go but only when he hears ready set you know that's the only context he can use verbal uh, use that word go in is in that verbal routine and then we move up to single words or functional words words that a kid would use to get his everyday needs met and then lastly a kid would learn how to imitate short phrases so you can see there from that continuum that so many times as SLPs or other therapists and certainly as parents when we think about talking we're way up at level seven when our little friend or our own child might be down at level one or level two and so we've got to help him get there from here so we have to find our starting point now throughout the rest of this course I'm going to help you really think about a starting point for a kid so that again you meet him or he or she is and you can start out at that just right place if you haven't already gone back and looked at those levels on the chart in your handout I want to encourage you to do that now and so let's just stop I'm going to get my handout and then we'll review that together so now we're ready to talk about how to figure out your starting point with a kid who's not imitating. So if you've gotten your handout, look at this second page. And this is from my book. Uh, this is from the Autism Workbook. But th these are the questions that I have in there about imitating. So important for all kids, not just kids with autism. But remember what we said about imitating. It's the most important skill we're going to teach any kid who's not yet talking. So let's look at this. We looked at the levels of imitation in this chart. And again, that's from Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers from the uh, therapy manual and that link is right there if you're interested in that but this is the one that you got on your handout uh, when you purchased uh, CE credit for 10 bucks so this one looks at level one and so our first level is imitating actions with objects and so what we want to do is ask ourselves some questions as we go through here and at the first point where we begin to think well he might be able to do that that's usually our starting point it's not going to be where we think oh he can do that he can do that he can do that but we want to find eight or ten or more examples for every level that we have with the child and I'll go through that specifically as we're talking about this we want him to exhibit lots of examples because then we know that he has mastered that level and when a kid has mastered that level we automatically bump up to the next level and so that's why you'll see right here with each of the levels I have mastered, emerging, and absent so that you can see. We'll never start with anything that's absent. Why? Because that's going to be too hard for a kid. We always want to find where 
a kid's skills are emerging. Now here's the kicker for some light talkers. They will have three or four areas that seem to be emerging and that's okay because again that's just how they are. They're not learning language as typically as we would expect them to but the truth is t some typically developing babies really start to do a lot of these things kind of it all looks like it's coming in at the same time too. So what we want to do as therapists and parents then is work at the lowest level that's emerging. That's our starting point. And again, if you get the handout, you can go through these things. Or if you have the autism workbook, or if you have building verbal imitation in toddlers, you can go through these charts and look at that and figure out where's the lowest level that he only has an example or two. That's where I need to start working with him. That's going to be that very best uh, starting point for that child. And let me say, too, don't go go with immediate imitation. There are two kinds of imitation, delayed imitation and immediate imitation. Now let's talk about the differences. Delayed imitation is happens with kids too. They'll watch you do something, they'll watch you do it, they'll see you do it, and you don't see them trying to copy you or imitate you for days, hours or days later. That's fine. That's perfect. We want to see that. But that's not the kind of imitation that we're talking about that we need to be focused on with late talkers. We want them to be as efficient an imitator as they can be, meaning you say it, they say it. You say it, they say it. Well, to get there, we already said words are way up here at level seven. We've got to start at an easier level way back here, but we've also, again, got to build in that frequency so that he's imitating a lot. And that's how we know that his skills are really, really strengthened there. So that's what we're going to do is walk through these levels. And when we find just the lowest point that a kid's skills are emerging, that's where we're going to start to work with him. And sometimes therapists will say, well, I just, I just want to look at him. You know, I'm, I'm a half, I'm a glass half full kind of person and I just want to be as positive as I can be. And I just want to focus on a kid's strengths. It's not going to do you any good. <laughs> That's what his parents are already trying to do. They're already working up there at words. And if you want to keep doing that and spinning your wheels for weeks or months, you know, go for it. But this is a better way to do it is to figure out where that breakdown starts to occur and meet a kid there. So let's talk about this first level here. It's level one is actions with objects. And what do we want a kid to do here? We want him to try to copy any actions that he sees somebody else do. So uh, does he try to, I gave you some examples before, uh, complete a household chore like you. You know, my daughter, when she was at this age, she could barely walk, but boy, she wanted to run the vacuum. That was something she saw me do. And she would just try to beat me to the closet to get the vacuum out when she knew that I was going to vacuum or even sweep with a broom. And so does your child try to do that? Does does he try to copy anything? Does he pick up a block and pretend that it's a cell phone or even you know, just pick up one of his little pretend phones? Does he, do you see him, even if he's not really talking yet, trying to jabber into that phone? That would be an example of imitation uh, with an object. It could be when you're sitting down to play with him. Let's say you've gotten a new toy and you show him how to operate it, like where to push the button or how to open the door. That would be a wonderful example. It might be if you're playing with hats and he sees you put a hat on on your head and then he puts his hat on his head. So those would be good examples of imitating actions with objects. If a kid can, has about 10 or 12 different examples or if you think I'm just going to work through this whole process with him and see where he is and I'm starting at the beginning. If he has 10 or 12 of those, 
fantastic. You were ready to move on to level two. That would be imitating body movements and gestures. So this would be any kind of action you do with your body. When you clap, does he clap? When you wave your hands or wave, does he try to wave? Those kinds of things. Does he try to do hand motions to songs with you? Will she use some gestures on her own? Now, if she's using a lot of gestures on her own, she's past this point. But here's the thing. A lot of times parents... I'll, I'll ask them this, and I've, I've worked with just highly educated parents who've, who've missed this point. I'll say, is he using gestures? And they'll say, oh, yeah, he does. And then a week or two later, I'll find out he's only waved bye-bye a few times. Or she's she only sort of walks in the kitchen and sort of looks at the cabinet a little bit. And mom is giving her credit. Or maybe, maybe a child with autism is leading his mother. He's not looking up her arm. All he's doing is pulling her hand. He's not doing any other thing communicatively like looking at her eyes and trying to look at what he wants and then back at her he's not doing any of that but she's giving him credit for gestures kids need to be doing 16 gestures by 16 weeks and that's uh that's research from dr amy weatherby in the first words project and that that just really again we talked about how much uh, how much information we get when a kid is or isn't using gestures. And we know when gestures are coming in that words are next. Now, is that to say that maybe some of our little friends who are late talkers have been using gestures for months and aren't using words? Yes, that can happen too. Something else is disrupted in that in that process. But, but my point is kids really don't talk until they use those gestures. And so that's why it's so important. So uh, think about that. Are there eight to 10 different body movements and gestures that a child uses if they're already doing that if you can say well she she shakes her head no she points to something she wants she waves bye-bye she'll clap when I'm clapping with her if she's done a good job if you can keep going and get eight or ten of those kinds of gestures you're ready to move on to the next level and again go back and look at your handout your handout has all these questions right here so that you can be sure you have that information so if they're doing that, they're ready to move on. Level three is kind of controversial in the field of speech-language pathology, and I won't go into this all now because we'll save it for the show about this, but there's, there's, not, there's so much research on the side that says that using, doing anything with your mouth non-verbally is not connected to doing anything with your mouth verbally. And so if you want to work on speech, and language, you've got to use real words, which would mean what? Sound. However, <laughs> there's research on the other side of that that says, when, especially when a kid has had low muscle tone or high muscle tone, muscle tone differences, enough to affect feeding. Have there been enough neurological uh, differences here to affect how a child's body works? That would be where a kid might need some of that level three work where he's just imitating facial and mouth movements so that he can alert, so that he can, again, learn how to imitate where it's not so hard. Sometimes we add sound and it's just too hard for a kid to do it. Now, this will not be necessary for every late talker. And as I'm redoing this information, since this is an updated course, I really thought about just 
omitting this information altogether. But the truth is, there are some kids who need this. And there are some times, especially when a kid has had feeding difficulty or other whole body muscle difference, that this phase might be necessary. So for some kids, that will be, and it will be something you need to pay attention to. But for most late talkers, you're going to skip right on to level four. And this is the level that I start a lot of the little friends that I see that don't have the issues beyond late talking. It really is just an expressive language piece or just expressive language a language delay with a mild receptive language delay. This is where we would start along with our receptive language work here at level four. And this would be using vocalizations during play. And these are going to be like your little sound effects. So these are going to be things like uh, fake coughing, fake sneezing, car sounds that aren't words. We'll get to the words at level five, things that sound like words with exclamatory words. But here we're just doing like little sounds, like like a sneeze sound, like ah, Something like that. Now, we kind of spell that. We kind of maybe think about that as a word. A-H-C-H-O-O is ah-choo. We could spell it. But really, the kid is doing more like a ch. You know, more like a little, a real sneeze would sound. And so that's how we think about this. These aren't quite words, but they're vocalizations. And this is where many, many, many of our late-talking friends are are functioning when we meet them. And so we start to do their speech avowals, and their parents are telling us something about them. And they'll say, well, she doesn't have very many words. She doesn't really say anything. Or they'll say she has a lot of words, and then they're describing things that are here at this level. And I like it when a parent is saying, telling me these little sound effect kinds of things they make, especially at the next level with level five. So this would be where they're using exclamatory words. So this would even include things like animal sounds. So if you get a kid who's using two or three animal sounds and he's making a car noise and and all these things, we want him to do, you know, about a dozen of these kinds of sounds before we think he's really developmentally ready to move on. And so this is such a fun level for therapy because we can incorporate these things into play so easily. And so many parents that I've worked with have found so much success at this level. And all I've had to do is tweak it a little bit and say, you know, your child's not quite ready for words yet. You're trying to work way up here, but let's bring him back down here to level four and level five, and let's work here for a while. And that's when a kid really gets successful. He starts to vocalize more. He gets some new little words or pre-words there. And that just, that again, sets that stage for success. So that's what we want to see going there. Now, the next level, level six, is even a little higher than that. These are where kids start to say words, but again, really tied to context. So remember the example that I gave you before with ready, set, go. The kid that can only say, he can say go, but he can only say it when he hears ready, set. You might say that a kid, sometimes a mom will say, well, my kid can count to three, and I'll, I'll think she means one, two, three, but she'll say, oh no, all he can say is three, because I say one, two, and then he blurts out three. That's a perfect example of a verbal routine or automatic speech. And if you are an SLP, think back to your adult neuro class, <laughs> where we learned when uh, adults have a neurological event like a stroke or a traumatic brain injury and they've lost their language or lost their speech, what do we start with? We start with these things that are automatic. We start with singing familiar songs. We start with saying the alphabet. We start with things that, again, kind of come out without us even really having to think about it too much. And that's where we start with toddlers, too, with talking lots of times. But we have to establish those verbal routines so that those words do become automatic. And I'm going to teach you how to do that in that course. That's at level six, and we'll get there. The next one is functional words. Now, it is tempting for every 
therapist and parent who would use this approach to want to start at words because you say, I want him to talk. <laughs> That's my goal. Why can't I just start there? I hope that you know, however long this show's been going, over an hour now, I hope that I've convinced you that we can't start at levels that are too high for your child or too high for a particular late-talking toddler or preschooler. And you've already done that. You've already tried that. You've already said, say mama, say dada. You've already said, tell me milk or you can't have your sippy cup. You've already done that and it's not working. So I would just beg you (laughs) to back up for those kinds of kids and know that we'll get here with words but a kid isn't really ready to start at this developmental level with words until he's met these easier earlier goals he's he's imitating at those easier earlier levels and I have some other things that I'm going to teach you in that show I think that show 428 if I'm remembering correctly I'll teach you some things in that show that will really help you know when a child is developmentally ready to work on words but for now no, it's after he gets these other levels of invitation. And then we'll we'll finish up here with phrases and we don't start working on imitating phrases until a child's single word vocabulary is well established. And that would mean beyond imitation. So, you know, what I said before, I said how a kid learns a word, there are five steps. He's got to connect with you first so that he's paying attention to you. He's got to share that experience with you with that joint attention. That cognitive receptive language piece comes in next. He's got to understand what it is that you're doing, understand, uh, really understand the function of the object or, or at the least be sharing that experience with you so that it's meaningful and he's starting to match the words with what you're saying, with what you're doing. Fourthly, this is what we're focused on. A kid learns how to say the word. So that's the imitation piece. And he's never going to learn how to use the word functionally until he can say it. Now, for some kids who have nice receptive language, that process comes simultaneously. They learn how to say and use the word at the same time. But for a lot of kids, uh, they're they're not going to be there yet. And they certainly, my point is, they can't use the word until they can imitate the word. And so you can't jump ahead to phrases until a kid is really doing a lot of words. And sometimes parents will try to do that. You know, they'll think, I'm trying to teach them how to talk, so I'm just going to work on bye-bye-da-da or hi-mama. And kids don't really learn language that way. They also don't really learn how to generate their own phrases that way. And so uh, my point is, don't get too far ahead of yourselves. You've got to really keep this at that sequential level so that kids can learn how to be successful. All right, so that's all our information. Before we close, let's review again those three big facts about imitation that I want you to really own in your uh, scripts that you use with parents so that you're really talking with them about how important imitation is. Number one, imitation is how all kids learn everything. Number two, when a child is not talking yet, there's a high probability that he or she is not imitating. And number three, and this is the one you really need to know, imitation is the most important skill you're going to teach any late talker. That's what we're going to focus on in the rest of this series. We're going to meet kids at the lowest level of imitation where their skills are starting to emerge. You can get all this information if you'll uh, go to the link below with the handout uh, that purchase there, that link uh, to purchase that handout there and CE credits in our $10 CEU program. Or if you want to just jump straight to the book, you can get this information in Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. 
the chart is the very best part of this book because it is going to keep you on track and it's going to remind you as a parent or as a therapist oh no i'm working way up here when really my little one is way down here this is where we can be successful so i hope that i've convinced you of the validity of this approach so that right now you can decide this is what I've been doing wrong. This is how I can be more successful. And this is how I can help this child make changes. All right, that's it for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And you have joined me for part one of our podcast series, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Late Talkers. Thank you so much. <laughs>